Okay, hello everybody and welcome to Tuesday Talks, a live discussion series where we shed light and bring truth to emerging topics in the communications industry. I'm Molly Weiss, the VP of Marketing and Communications at Numerical, and today I'll be co-hosting this session with Jerry Christensen, VP of Business Development and Strategic Partnerships at UMail. It's great to have you here today, Jerry. Welcome. Thanks, Molly. It's great to be here. So for today's session, which will be focusing on spoofing, what it is, what's being done about it, and how this relates to KYC efforts, traceback, and robocall mitigation plans, Jerry was our obvious choice. He has over 30 years of information and communications technology experience. At UMail, he's responsible for leading strategic initiatives to leverage communications analytics capabilities to address critical industry needs for consumers and enterprises. And talking about critical industry needs, one of the largest of today's landscape is the ongoing fight against illegal calls. So. We've all been more than aware of the June 30th deadline to implement StirShaken to prevent illegally spoofed calls. And a quick shout out to Umail, who was featured in a piece by the New York Times yesterday on this very subject. So I thought a great starter question for Jerry today would be, so what is call spoofing? Yeah, so let's go ahead and move over to that slide that I sent you, Molly. Yeah, teeing it up. So call spoofing in the traditional sense is what I refer to as the narrow definition of call spoofing. So, and I've actually experienced this myself where I have had my own number spoofed and actually called myself. So that would be arguably the most egregious form of call spoofing. It's a legitimately allocated number to my carrier and it's assigned for use by Jerry Christensen and used or abused by somebody else. So that's the narrow definition of spoofing we know. There's other forms of spoofing, of course. And I think that this is also a good time to make it clear that spoofing in and of itself is not illegal. There are legal forms of spoofing. So that would be like a battered women's shelter, for example. They spoof the number so that you can't track them down and, and, and do bad things. A police officer might spoof their number as well because they don't want you to have their personal number. Oftentimes that legal spoofing is not used in conjunction with a robocall though. And I think it's also important to note that not all robocalls are bad. Some robocalls are used by public safety and other le legitimate agencies for purposes of broadcast messages. Now, the broad definition of spoofing, what I'm asserting here is that that would be an instance in which the number may or may not be allocated to a carrier, but it is not assigned for use by anybody. So the typical example there would be a number is either rented or leased from a carrier or some service provider, and then used in, con in conjunction with some unwanted robocall campaign. And so the key point there is that whoever's leasing these numbers doesn't want to use them to receive calls because they want to try to act with impunity to conduct their, their illegal campaigns. Great, thanks, Jerry. I think that sets us up with a really good baseline. So you know, now that we've kind of built a little bit of, of a foundation around what spoofing is, can you tell us how this is related to Stir Shaken? And let's talk specifically about the infamous June 30th Stir Shaken deadline. Now that we're past this deadline, what's actually happened from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So Stir Shaken is a really good starting point. I think I should say that first and foremost. It's kind of like table stakes. Everybody's got to do it eventually, even if they haven't done it yet, they, they ultimately have to do it. And it really is a good thing to do. And it does stop certain types of spoofing, but not all types of spoofing. So it's really good at that narrow definition of spoofing. Jerry Christensen does not call himself anymore. That stopped a long time ago. And so if you step back and you kind of think about this, 
Um, it stir shaken, it fits pars part and parcel with the know your customer process, the KYC process. Now KYC has been around for a long time. It's part of OSS BSS and it's really nothing new there. Carriers have to vet their customers and they've been doing that for a while. But now you've got this extra thing called Stir Shaken where not only do you have to apply your KYC process to it, but you have to have some new network procedures associated with it. And again, Stir Shaken is really good at stopping certain types of spoofing. I think it's important to note that with any KYC process, you can know certain things about your customer. You know who they are, you know how to reach them. You may even have a really bust robust KYC process where you ask them to produce certain information like declarations, like perhaps their TCPA compliance statement or something like that. But what you can never know with 100% assurance is their behaviors. And so that's the one thing that's lacking from any KYC process is the ability to predict in advance how somebody's going to behave. So now with Stir Shaken in place, there's also some interesting things to consider beyond just the new procedures at the network level. There's policy decisions. So with Stir Shaken, there's what's referred to as attestation levels, A, B, and C respectively. A means that you know the network and you can associate the number with the network. B means you know the network, but you cannot associate the number with the network. And C means that you know neither one. So C would be like a global gateway, for example, where you're just not sure of anything. So not only do we have these new procedures in place where you're authenticating calls and you're assigning an attestation level, but you also have a policy decision in terms of not only assigning that policy level, which in some ways is pretty clear. If you are, for example, a traffic aggregator and you've assigned some numbers like that example I gave you in, in that broad spoofing case, you know the network is yours, you know the numbers are yours, so you might attest those as A, right? But what you don't know is what's going to happen downstream. Maybe a terminating carrier will accept that A, or maybe if uh, you have another call that is attested as C, maybe they will block that. Maybe they will not allow that to go through. So these policy decisions are not only at the front end in terms of how an originator is going to attest a call, but at the terminating end, in terms of when they look at the attestation level, what they do with it. So there's some new things in place and it's making a really good impact, but it's certainly not solving all the problems that are out there. It's true. And you brought up an excellent point, which is know your customer. We're all about know your customer. And when we, when we start to get into some of this, you know, how much do you feel a service provider really could or should know about a customer? And, and kind of building off of that, can you describe a little bit about how you feel analytics can help service providers to strengthen their KYC framework and tighten up their monitoring for fraudulent activities? Yeah, exactly. I, I would say regardless of how robust their process is and how well they feel that they know their customer, every carrier should have some form of behavioral monitoring capability. Because again, no matter how well you know your customer, you can't predict their behaviors in advance. So there could be potentially some best practices in place from a KYC perspective. I alluded to some of them earlier. You asked for a TCPA compliance statement. Um, but as we know, anytime you ask for things like that, it's additional sales friction. And when you're selling something, when you're getting somebody on board, you don't want to have additional friction. You want to lease them their numbers. You want to do whatever it takes to get them up and running. 
you don't want to have to worry about too much friction. So that is exactly why there's a need to have some behavioral monitoring. And, and I advocate that the best way to do that is a content-based event analytics approach. Um, and so what I mean by that is looking at the actual content of the call, what's actually happening to be able to determine what is happening with the call. And, and by that way, you would know, uh, for example, the, the, the example I like to, to use is the car warranty scam. Um, some people think it's a nuisance, some people think it's spam, some people think it's scam, some people think it's outright fraud. But if you have the actual payload of what's transpired, the, the content, and you're running some descriptive analytics against it, then you can make some decisions as to what to do about that. It's a good point when it, when it comes to monitoring and assessing any of the subjective nature of any of these things too, when, you, when you're an, on, sometimes on a gray line, a gray area. And so kind of going off that, we know that the commission has been very clear about the ongoing responsibilities for service providers to continuously monitor for illegal traffic originating on the network so we can find and stop these bad actors or investigate these things that require a little more insight into before we can really determine is it good or bad. So. What happens um, if a service provider's verification process seems to fall short? What happens if or when a call rings through as verified that actually is a bad actor? I mean, can this happen and, and you know, what's driving some of this? Well, there was, you asked a great question there, and very open-ended and there's a lot of things to address there. So I'll, I'm gonna address the very last thing. One of the implications of Stir Shaken is that there's this thing called the Verstat parameter, which stands for a verification status. And all that means is that stir shaken has occurred successfully, meaning that the call has been authenticated. But again, it could be at the A level, B level, or C level. So conceivably, uh, for anybody that may see the little green check mark and maybe even verified call on their phone, what that means is that that verse, that parameter was passed to the phone. And in advance of that happening, the handset manufacturer has done what they need to do to be able to display something on the phone. But what that does not mean is necessarily is that it's A-attested, number one. And then number two, it also doesn't mean that the behavior of the caller is pure or good or, or not doing anything uh, bad. So at the consumer level, there can certainly be a lot of confusion and ambiguity when they see that type of thing. Uh, you know, what do you do when you get those kind of calls? It's, it's a fair question. As a matter of fact, we're probably going to do a survey or some kind of poll to see what people would do. So that's, that's one thing to consider. Uh, and then if you could restate the questions, I know there's another part that I wanted to answer. Yeah, so it was really what happens if the service provider's verification seems to fall short and how, how can we help service providers to fulfill some of these requirements to continuously monitor for this illegal traffic that's originating on their network so we can facilitate the traceback efforts to, to find and stop these people? Right, right. That was the other aspect I wanted to answer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's the consumer level that I already covered. At the B2B level, the FCC has an order that essentially says thou shalt not originate an unwanted robocall. And so depending on the carrier and what they've submitted with their RMPs, the robocall mitigation plan to the FCC, some of them are saying they've got a self-governance. Some have kind of redacted what they've submitted, so it's not clear what they're doing. And so one of the things that I would advocate is that they have some form of monitoring to let themselves know what's going on. And the reason I say that is, is I could distill it down very easy to say, you don't wanna be, uh, the you, you want to be the first one to know. You don't want the FCC to be calling you. You don't want the 
industry traceback group to be contacting you. you. You want to be the first one to know, if possible, when there's somebody on your network that's doing less than favorable things that you might want to consider taking them off your network. It's a tough decision. You sign a customer up, um, you, you go to them and you say, well, you know, my, my data is indicating that you're doing things that are not good. I think you need to suspend your campaigns for now. It's, it's a tough decision. But it's even tougher, I would argue, if the FCC calls you and they say, you know, hey, there's a pattern of you originating a high percentage of your traffic that is deemed as an unwanted robocall. So that, that's what I would advocate for, for traffic originators and, and even transit network providers is that they have some way of keeping track of what's going on in their network from a behavioral perspective. So what kind of data points are particularly and very interestingly useful to some of the industry traceback groups efforts? What are you finding to be really awesome, kind of like almost, um, you know, the murder weapon, if you say you found it, you've got the proof now, like what's some of that data that you're seeing that's that's been really helpful? Yeah, so um, it's funny you should bring up that example, the murder weapon. I know it's kind of a a harsh um, example, but um, the the analogy I like to use is that um, Stir shaken is kind of like registering something. Uh, you know that it belongs to Jerry. You know that Jerry has the right to use it and, and you have a way of kind of tracking Jerry down. So that's why stir shaken is very part and parcel to the KYC process. And then you've got tools like event-based analytics that use um, event-based content that uses predictive analytics, I should say. So event-based um, content would be things like uh, SIP messages and things like that. You, you have something that's indicative of a pattern of something, and then you use your predictive analytics to determine you know, whether you think that it's spam or whether you think that it's a scam. And then you have content-based and descriptive analytics where you're actually looking at what's transpired. You're looking at the actual audio. So that would allow you to be able to say, okay, not only do I know who this person is or who this entity is that's initiated these calls, but I have evidential proof that they've done something that's less than favorable. And then you can use that, uh, getting back to your earlier question about the ITG, use that as the impetus to work with the ITG to perhaps initiate a traceback if it's warranted. And, and there's a relatively big hurdle to do that because the ITG uh, usually has a queue of tracebacks that they need to do and there is a cost associated with that. So you wanna be pretty darn sure that when you're initiating a traceback that it's warranted. And so having the evidential proof is, is really helpful to be able to do that. So let's talk about, you know, we talked about robocall mitigation plans and the traceback group. So let's kind of put, try to put some scale around some of this. Uh, so Numerical's been tracking the implementation numbers from the FCC robocall mitigation database, and it's been growing and growing. As of this morning, we have 360 service providers who have fully implemented StirShaken, 756 have partially implemented, and another 1,500 or so have not implemented StirShaken and are executing an alternative robocall mitigation plan. So for the 2,600 or so service providers who are out there that are now in the execution phase of their robocall mitigation plans or stir shaken rollout, 
What would you say, Jerry, would be the top three recommendations you'd want to pass along to these providers who are right in the thick of it trying to figure out the best way through all of this? They want to make sure they're doing all they can to monitor for, identify, facilitate these traceback efforts, make sure they can you know, hone on on this bad actor traffic. What would you say? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, revisit your KYC process. Now take a look at what you already have in place, see what you've got documented, uh, perhaps ask some third parties what they think. I mean, KYC has been around for a long time. It's in the financial industry, it's in the telecom industry. You know, take a look at it and see what types of questions you ask and uh, see how that might be applied in a worst case scenario where you actually need to follow through with, with some kind of action. So that's the first thing I'd say. The next thing I would say is can consider your KYC governance as it relates to behaviors. Because again, no matter how well you know your customer, you can't predict their behavior with 100% assurance. So that's why I like to kind of re refer to it as a KYCB uh, to have that additional behavioral monitoring element. And then finally, the third one, I would say consider supplementing your KYC with analytics uh, and, and more specifically, the content-based descriptive analytics. Um, not that event-based analytics is not useful at all. It certainly is, is better than no analytics, but if you wanna to get to the, the ground truth of what's actually happening, you need to look at the actual payload, the actual audio of what the robocallers are using to be able to, to determine if it's something that warrants, you know, maybe kicking them out of your network or maybe just giving them a warning or whatever you think is appropriate based on your governance. And I'm gonna kind of tee off of that one too, real quick, Jerry, because you made me think of something. When you're when you're scanning and monitoring, are you looking for certain things, certain keywords, certain actions, certain behaviorals that trip this threshold? Or could you also be searching for something, whatever, any specific keyword that anybody in particular is looking for something very unique? Is there the ability to look for that too? Well, it kind of depends on the service that we're talking about. If we're talking about a solution or a service that's looking for things like brand imposters. So if we're looking at impersonation of a brand like Marriott, for example, then we would very clearly look for a single keyword. And then we would branch off of there and see, is it Marriott making a legitimate call or is it maybe Jerry's wife calling about the Marriott reservation? And in fact, uh, I've used email as an example here, our artificial intelligence and machine learning. The very first thing we do is we parse out the database so that we can set aside the legitimate good calls that from a privacy perspective, a PII perspective that we should not be looking at. So we don't look at those, separate those out. And then we look at those that are definitely our robocalls. And we, we in particular use machine learning and AI and look at the waveform specifically because we can look at the waveform and get a sense for is it a robocall and we can determine is it a, a valid good robocall like public safety making a call or is it a bad guy and then create a digital fingerprint and that's really important because then you can track that across different telephone numbers regardless of what telephone numbers are used because one of the tactics that the bad guys like to use is the so-called snowshoe spamming, where they place just a few calls across a lot of numbers rather than a lot of calls on a few numbers. So it's really hard to identify unwanted robocalls just by using event-based predictive analytics. So that's why a content-based approach like, like what I'm referring to here is, is really useful because getting back to your question, Sure, you can look for keywords, but it's more contextually speaking how those words fit together 
Does it look like fraud? And then also looking at things like a pattern. Is this particular waveform, the digital fingerprint, is this used on a whole bunch of different numbers? So that would be indicative of some type of a campaign that's, that's nefarious in nature. That's awesome. Thanks, Jerry. So what I think we should do now is kind of start shifting. We've got about 10 minutes left. So I wanted to thank you so much for your awesome summary so far. I wanted to also clue everybody in here who's listening to us live that we've just published a blog this afternoon that goes into even more depth on this topic, hot off the presses. So we're gonna be posting a link into the chat window here for everybody to check out to get a first glimpse. And I know that uh, Jerry and the UMail team are also working on a brand new white paper. So I wanted to give you, Jerry, the opportunity to tell everybody about that here too, also hot off the presses. Yeah, so the white paper is gonna be available probably in about a week or so, and we'll make that available through our partner in Miracle. So if anybody has questions as a result of this webinar slash podcast or the blog, and, and they just wanna get even more details about some of these things that I've touched on, let us know and we'll get that to you through Numerical. Unless you contact us directly, we'll, we'll, we'll provide it to Numerical so they can send that to you. That's awesome. Thanks, Jerry. And feel free everybody here to start making requests here in the chat box. And we also have some questions that are coming in. So I wanted to start asking these to Jerry as well. We've got a few good ones lined up. So first one is, what are some of the common behavioral patterns that you're watching for that raise the first flag that it's a bad actor versus a good actor on the line? Well, to be honest, that is a much better question for an analytics engine that is using event-based and predictive analytics. And you know, I'll give a real generalized answer. You, know, you look at calling patterns, you look at the velocity of the call, like how many calls do they make? Um, I think it's safe to say that pretty much all the analytics engines have at least some basis on crowdsource feedback. So, because um, keep in mind, these are not all outright fraud. Some of them are abusive telemarketers. It could be a debt collector. So there's a lot of potential inputs that go into an algorithm. There are some uh, probabilistic aspects, some of which I just mentioned. And then there's also some deterministic methods. And so that would be things like, is it a malformed number? Is it a non-NAMPA number? So uh, I know I'm giving a long-winded answer here, but, but actually that would be a much better question for somebody to answer that is with an event-based predictive analytics. But the bottom line is with predictive analytics, you're, you're using a um, pretty much an educated guess as to what you think is happening. That's why it's referred to as predictive analytics, but you can't be absolutely sure of something uh, and that's why a lot of times it's a good idea to do a check and see what's actually happening. Um, one of the things we've chatted about in the past, Molly, is that uh, if you call some of these numbers, uh, you get a fast busy or you get some kind of a switch based error, or maybe you get an IVR that says this is a common one on the car warranty scan. If you want to be removed from our list, press one. And so, you know, when you call those kinds of numbers, you're never going to reach a live person. So that's why, especially with predictive analytics, you, you need to sometimes do some fact checking and use your human brain to try to determine, you know, does this seem right or not? And then use the um, safe harbor cover that the FCC gives you with reasonable analytics in the redress process to take action as appropriate. I think that's fair. Yeah, it's a, it was a pretty complicated question. I'm going to totally shift you gears on this next one now. So question two is, What's your number one tip to improve traceback efforts? Yeah, so I would say, and I touched on this earlier, I would say the number one thing is to have at least some form of analytics 
because traceback in the strictest sense could be initiated at any time. And if you have a lead on somebody that you think might be doing something wrong, you can initiate the traceback. But number one, there is a cost associated with it. And then number two, uh, it might not get done right away. But if you go to the ITG and you say, I've got evidential proof of wrongdoing, then it's gonna get closer to the top of the queue. And also you're gonna save money because you know, they're gonna charge you uh, for every time you, you request a traceback. And if you ask for some tracebacks that don't result in, in, in wrongdoing, then you've wasted your time and money. So I would say the best thing to do is to have that. And, and it also relates back to something else I said. You wanna be the first one to know that you've got a problem. You, you wanna be initiating the traceback yourself uh, or, or if necessary, picking up the phone if you know the carrier it came from already somehow and say, you know, hey, we need to look into this. You don't want the FCC or, or the ITG themselves contacting you. And that's a, that's a good point. Where does this normally start in terms of the the very beginning of the investigation? Is it a consumer level, like me getting a call like this and, and reaching out to you to say, I don't know what's going on here? Is it the brand itself? Is it one of the authorities? Is it the ITG? How does this really get started for you? Well, it, it could really start in any number of ways. And, and the one thing that you mentioned, uh, you as a consumer complaining, as I mentioned earlier, crowdsource feedback is, is a component of, of most analytics engines to one degree or another with their algorithm. So I guess you could say in, in one sense, that could be the, the, the initial thing. But by and large, it's the analytics engine themselves identifying a problem, whether that's event-based predictive or whether that's content-based descriptive, the AE saying, you know, hey, there's something wrong here, we need to take action. Now, that action could be talking to the carrier directly and saying there's something going on here, you might wanna investigate it, and the carrier says, well, I can't investigate it any further, let's initiate a traceback. Because the point of origination of some of these calls could be a foreign entity, and you can only trace it back so far, and you only get to the point where they come onto the network, and, and then you have to talk to them and say, this traffic is coming from you. You need to track it down and stop it. It's true. Yeah. So you remind me of something else. Uh, this is our very first Tuesday Talks episode since the stir shaking deadline has passed. So we have one more last question here for you, which is relating back to all of this. So we've, we're into stir shaking about 13 days now. Do you have a perspective on whether or not it's successful so far or you know, going to be successful in stopping the bad actors that we all really desperately want to stop calling us? I, I do, and I'm gonna caveat it by saying it's an anecdotal perspective. Um, uh, I'd like to get some hard data and we're seeking hard data on this, but what I believe is happening is Number one, for all those carriers that have already implemented stir shaking, it, it takes a while to implement. So it's not like a light switch, like they flip it on on June 30th and all of a sudden it's working. So anybody that's been working on it, they were already had things in place. But remember, there's the policy aspect of it. So what I believe is happening uh, upon reason and belief, I think from a policy perspective, some carriers are making some decisions like hmm, maybe we're gonna block everything that's C attested, or maybe we're going to send it to an IVR capture or something like that. So we're already starting to see some evidence of some fall off immediately. And I suspect that's due to more policy decisions that happened all of a sudden on June 30th, and not that everybody turns to shaking on altogether on June 30th. So what is most likely gonna happen is you know, because the bad guys are smart, you know, the ones that you're actually talking to on the phone, you know, English is a second language, they may not 
know what's going on, but the ringleaders behind it, they are pretty smart. So they will change their behaviors. And even though there's been some gains uh, initially, ultimately the, the bad guys will find some other path of least resistance. And, and one of my concerns, again, referring back to this broad definition of spoofing, is that they may go legitimately get some numbers from a legitimate carrier and abuse those numbers. And if you're looking at it just from an event-based perspective, it looks okay. It looks like a normal number. It looks like a power user or maybe an SMB line. But if you're actually looking at the content or the payload of those of the audio, then you're you can discern, oh wow, this is problematic. So I, I think we're gonna see a shift in behavior of the bad guys that's gonna require a shift of the white hats to have a different approach than just relying on stir shaken alone. But but so far it, it's made a difference. It's already making a positive impact. And like I said. It's a good thing for the industry, it's table stakes, but it's definitely not enough. Well, Jerry, we would love to have you back for another episode when we've got a little bit more empirical data to start going through. So mark your calendars, you're coming back. And at, at this time, we're right at the end of the half hour, so I'd like to thank everybody so much for joining us today on another episode of Tuesday Talks. We hope to see you all again on Tuesday, July 27th, when we'll be joined by Frank Pettinato of Avantive Solutions to talk about RCD, branded calling, and how all of that technology is rolling out so far. Thank you very much.